0: Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. We've got a special guest with us today. Joining me, Jason, and Kevin is John, the lit crit guy from the Horror Vanguard, which I
1: think all of you will be familiar with. Uh, And if not, you should be. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And yeah, you you, you absolutely should be. You absolutely should be familiar uh, with Horror Vanguard, which is... Uh, if, for people who don't listen, it is a, a leftist uh, podcast about the three most important things. Uh, it's about friendship. Uh, it's about horror movies, and uh, thirdly, it's about communism. Uh, um, if you if you like the three things like, that matter in life, you know. Yeah, the three the three things that really do matter in life. Um, if you like, uh, you know, uh, media analysis and film criticism that is trying to combine. Uh, you know, uh, monsters and high theory, then yeah, uh, do check out Horror Vanguard wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, but mostly we're on SoundCloud, we're on horrorvanguard.com and, you know, you can support the show as well.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Uh, w- we're familiar with Horror Vanguard from the early days of the podcast where we actually uh, used your blog, which I believe only ended up with like three posts on it or something like that. Mm-hmm. As a uh, part of our reading material for our episode, the couple of episodes that we did on Gothic Marxism, and uh, we referenced your blog and your podcast, and that, this was, I think, in twenty nineteen, maybe it's a long time ago. This is where you, you just got started. I think there were yeah. like two or three episodes out at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, the 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 real the the deep cuts, the the yeah. forbi- the forbidden law of horror vanguard, uh, <laughs> back, back when we didn't know what we were doing at all and we have aggressively kept up not knowing what we're doing (laughs) for for years now and we will never know what we're doing but i very much appreciate um the fact that you went you've been you've been checking out the show for so long it is it's really lovely to hear that people it's it's crazy to think that we're closing in on episode 300 now and you know we've done we've done more than an episode a week for over four years um, wow. s- straight, which is fr- frankly just not something I would recommend. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: we, we never would, we barely do two episodes. We dropped
2: off, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we were trying to hit it hard early on, but uh, we definitely, like uh, like, yeah, sort of, sort of backed off to a more sustainable approach to like what was it, a, a couple episodes a month or something.
0: Yeah, like, I'm, I'm working on a PhD. Uh, Kevin's a freaking attorney, and uh, Jason was always very busy working in television but uh Jason's actually had a lot of time lately. Yeah, <laughs> Jason got in a really bad car accident and uh is only barely or not, you're you're very not dead now, but we're only barely not dead for for a little bit there.
1: Well, this is the this is the direction of progress. That's the direction of progress that like mm. is really lovely to hear about.
2: Yeah you are going from being almost dead to not almost dead. There's <laughs> <laughs> a,
0: a dialectical process of, n- of being dead and not being dead at the same time, and it's been progressing. You've subsumed that being dead portion uh, into your life. Now you're like the living dead, essentially, right? <laughs> keeping, keeping with the horror theme here. Anyway, so I guess we got together today to talk about... Uh, the warm stream in Marxism, which if you've listened to more than just this episode, you've heard us refer to it several times. It's a, it's a, a term, I, th- I believe, that was invented by Ernst Bloch, but applies to uh, a lot of different strands, uh, not the least of which is Walter Benjamin. And uh, many of the Hegelian Marxists are often said to have been interjecting a, a warm stream back into Marxism. And we think that this is an important thing to do because... The dominant uh, – because because of the need for both the warm and the cold streams of Marxism, I think that the dominant current is a cold current, a very scientific, mechanistic, vulgar interpretation of Marxism that leaves out – tries to tamp down on things that we see as necessary to understand as part of what it makes us human. So – Basically, we read a little bit of Ernst Bloch to to prep for this, but I don't think we have to stick to that. Um, mm-hmm. But you are actually currently working on a book uh, that is a primer, right, for mm-hmm. Ernst
1: Bloch? Yeah. So uh, so Bloch is like an interesting figure um, and is kind of very sadly little read in, in English um, for a multitude of reasons. Quite a lot of his work hasn't been translated uh, from German, so... As uh, as a kind of hobby, I'm trying to translate his book on uh, Thomas Muntzner. Uh, mm. So this is one of his early works um, where it's uh, Thomas Muntzner and the Theologian of the Revolution, where Bloch makes this argument that Muntzner and the, the Peasants' Revolt in Reformation-era Germany is um, is proto-communistic. Yeah. Um, so Block is um, – the way that I kind of describe him stylistically is – the combination of like high German idealist philosophy filtered through literary modernism. So it's like, what if, what if James Joyce read a lot of Hegel? <laughs> <laughs> it would be, he would be a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you end up with the, this kind of style of block, and like Block is like a fiercely good philosopher, but a philosopher from within a very particular tradition of German thought, right, which goes all the way back. Um, probably to, to uh, Schelling is the is the kind of closest um, philosophical influence within within German idealism. Um, Hegel is his big influence in terms of his Marxism, and he remains he's always a kind of like non party line Marxist, which is right. what gets him into a lot of trouble with his one time extremely cl- close friend uh, Georgi Lukács, He's a hung- Hungarian philosopher. Lukasz, uh famously moves towards a kind of more orthodox Marxist-Leninism. Um, and so a really good jumping off point, actually, is uh, there's a series of debates in the 30s between Lukács and Bloch on the question of expressionism as mm-hmm. an artistic movement. And, you know, it, it kind of bubbled up in a few of the very... The the podcasts of the day, basically the literary magazines. (laughs) There was, there were there were some mad posts, um, and Block and Lukash have have what is at times an intensely kind of personal and in Lukash's case very vicious polemic, um, which is kind of it's really sad if you think about the fact that like the two of them were sort of inseparable for like a good chunk of their early development, and this is collected in the collection um, Aesthetics and Politics. From Verso Books, which has a, a really useful afterward by Jameson talking about the various debates. And Bloch's argument is that expressionism represents a kind of a new mode of art that socialists and communists have to pay attention to, and actually is a is a moment of opportunity. Um, Lukács is in deeply skeptical about this. Um, and is is basically accuses Bloch and the rest of the kind of socialists and communists to look at expressionism as kind of worth paying attention to as essentially abandoning dialectical materialism, abandoning Marxism for idealism, and losing sight of an art form which can speak to the social totality. Looks like it's recording. Okay, it's recording. That's
0: going to be fun to put all those together and then string them together with these cool...
1: Uh, uh, I was talking about Lukash. Lukash's uh, right. great uh, kind of art form is the is uh, literary realism. Yeah. Uh, L- Lukash defends realism because it's the mode of thought which gives the artist a kind of unique insight into the psychological and social totality of any historical form formation. Um, and he's immensely dismissive. Uh, and it's Lukash who coins the term romantic anti-capitalism. Uh, and if you read The the Destruction of Reason, um, which uh, very little read and very heavily criticized, um, Lukács basically links this romantic anti-capitalism with irrationalism and with fascism.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very Stalinist thing to do. Just anything yeah. that you don't like is fascism. <laughs> it's, yeah,
1: it's, it's fascism. Um, yes. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, so... But Bloch Block kind of defends this romantic anti-capitalism but would always say that he never stops being a kind of... He's, he's always a very militant communist and that kind right. of leads into problems for Bloch. He's very slow to abandon the Soviet Union. He's very slow to kind of say anything about like the Moscow show trials um, and he's very quick to excuse a lot of Stalinism up until, you know, post um, 1958 um, and he 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 has a really interesting career. So he's he's a kind of um, he comes of age in this era of German Expressionism and German idealism. He writes The Spirit of Utopia, which is excellent. He writes arguably what I think is one of the best um, uh, kind of exegesis on fascism. Uh, it's a book called Heritage of Our Time, and it's a really it's a really interesting uh, analysis of fascism because it is very critical of the kind of like. Uh, freudian marxist line on fascism that it's or, or the kind of second international line which is like it's it's a rationalism and block yeah. block gives a really detailed sociological analysis of how fascism speaks to every layer of capitalist society's imaginative capacities um and then th- there comes like his his kind of magnum opus which he writes in the reading room at harvard university um when he had managed to get out of europe uh, the Frankfurt School uh, famously didn't really want much to do with him because he was he was too Marxist. He, he was seen as being potentially too sympathetic to Stalin. Uh, and there's this great apocryphal detail of he was forced because of his communist sympathies and his communist uh, 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 ties. He was forced to report to the immigration officers in Boston uh, fairly regularly. And there's there's this great apocryphal detail. Of uh, taking the U.S. citizenship test and being asked about the uh, War of Independence, and he gives this incredible exegesis of history that leaves the examiners like completely stunned. <laughs> and <laughs> which is reported—it's reported by his wife—and it's you know, it's maybe not true, but it's a kind of wonderful insight into his sort of—he's—he's he's a great thinker to read because he's interested in literally everything, uh, and everything. The principle of hope is essentially an encyclopedia firstly. And secondly, like a philosophical investigation into how do you ground hope both politically and philosophically? And to do it philosophically requires essentially rethinking philosophy kind of from the ground up. Um, And the way that you do it is you make hope and utopia into the outworking of a kind of process ontology. Uh, this is his influence that he takes from Aristotle, uh, which is mentioned in the section, yeah, of the principle of hope that we might get into, and he's the one who coins this phrase of the the, the cool and the warm streams right. of uh, of Marxism. So I guess that's a very quick kind of gallop through some of the like most in- important initial points.
0: What was which was the name of his book uh, about fascism? Heritage of our time. Heritage of our time. Okay. That's interesting uh, the way you described it because one of the things that we did when, or that we do when talking about fascism and that we did in our episodes on fascism is talk about how fascism appeals to uh, certain things that are just inherent to being human
1: mm-hmm.
0: that leftists would like to try to ignore
1: mm-hmm.
0: and say, oh, well, if if, the, if that appeals to the fascists... Then uh, it's necessarily reactionary, and we should uh, right. we should eschew it. And we always say, well, in, you know, we should never be afraid of anything that is human, and we, we we can't we we can't cede ground to the fascists on things that are like that universally appeal to human beings, right? Um, generally, I use as an example for this is like music and film and literature, um, and uh, a lot of people would say that. I think we talked about this too. That fantasy is reactionary, horror is reactionary, and uh, science fiction that's uh, that's utopian, that's a uh, Promethean, that's forward looking. So like that's what I like. I like I like Star Trek because it has a vision of the future that's like you know a, a, a socialist society in space. I don't like other stuff that's like backward looking and gothic and it's uh in its temperament
2: romanticizing the past right that sort of thing like these things are in in, uh must must be necessarily uh reactionary uh because it is uh nostalgia for uh uh what has come before um rather than forward looking to the advancement of uh, civilization but but if if we but there's something appealing in it and uh and if we just let that go and say that any any um, nostalgia for the past is um, given to the fascist or to the, the right, then that thing that appeals to people is we're just like handing that over. So like, you know,
3: Wilhelm Reich is not responsible for very many things, you know, that worth quoting, worth remembering. But one thing he said that really sticks out for me is that he compares the Communist Party and the Nazis in Germany around the around that moment of rupture that could have gone either way. And he said that like the Nazis just could speak to something that the communists couldn't, you know, they could be mystical and they could be fantastical and they could speak a, you know, they could, they could doctor their speech according to the, to the crowd. And the, and the communists could only talk in one way. So they could only appeal to the people they already did appeal to. I mean, Victor Serge said the same thing. So you don't have to, I don't the to point to Wilhelm Reich. <laughs> with, the fact that both, with the fact that both Reich and Serge said this said that about the communists and that's if you look back now you can kind of see it it's a if you look around a, you now you can see it yeah yeah and the same is true now too like even today the left just we're still trying to figure out how to just talk to people about the whole of their experience and not just a, the one tiny bit of experience that you know is already left
0: territory right right yeah And I would say that like uh, the way that the left tries to talk about the experience of being a wage laborer Mm -hmm. is in a lot of instances, not every instance, but in a lot of instances that I see is divorced from the reality of wage labor as it exists now. And it's trying to couch it in terms of like, oh, you're a coal coal miner in West Virginia in the 1930s. Oh, you're a steel worker in 1918 or whatever. It's like that. I'm sorry. We've got to find different ways to talk about these things. And uh, one of the things that I, I find to be the most depressing is that we haven't, as the left, learned the lesson uh, of embracing people who have some sort of spirituality that they they yeah. they find to be important in their lives. We still have this incredibly vulgar materialist conception of what you have to be what kind of like ideological purity you must have in order to be a Marxist. And it can include belief in God or whatever.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and so like uh, maybe, maybe this is a good point to kind of have a look closer, look at that section from the principle of hope. Um, and it, it starts with a kind of long exploration of uh, basically his kind of like process Um he he's a he is like he's a process philosopher, right? So he's interested in like what are things going to become, and what is what are the conditions and the grounds of possibility from which things can develop into the future. Um, and this is you know I, I won't spend too long on that because I think that misses the kind of interesting point that we get to a little further down. So a little further down he he jumps through talking to like talking to uh of Fiore and the English millenarians and all of these kind of groups that have historically posited um you know to 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 quote to quote something from Eugene Debs that my friend Kyle says all the time, the world is not right. Like that's that's the kind of that's the basic utopian claim. The world is not right but the world is not simple like the world is not simply just a given right you don't just receive it is something that has been made ergo like despite despite <coughs> despite everything um you know there's a great quote from block where he says like if if the possibility of change has not been completely foreclosed the the argument against utopia you know you can't dismiss it on the basis of apparently factual reality you know if the facts are the problem so much for the facts right that's <laughs> it's a kind of very bold sort of sweeping just go no no doesn't matter <laughs> and so he comes to this kind of division between uh two ways of looking um at what he calls the the uh the objectively real possible so he has a real fondness for these mm. kind of neologisms and like kind of smashing things together um he he says the pr- the prospects exploration of what is impossibility goes towards the horizon in the sense of unobstructed unmeasured expanse in the sense of the possible capital P which is still unexhausted and unrealized. Um and it, further down he says only the coldness and warmth of concrete anticipation together ensure that we we don't kind of split these we don't have a kind of undialectical understanding of the situation right, so yeah. uh it's this wonderful phrase he has of like the two ways of being red uh, the two ways of being of being a, a filthy commie um mm-hmm. you have this um the, you have the cold stream which is Uh, philosophical, economistic, analytical, concerned with, um, you know, the facts as they appear to us. And then secondly, you have this, the warm stream of Marxism, which is prophetic, uh, revolutionary, uh, utopian, and concerned with, as he puts it, the horizon of possibility. You know, what exists in, utopia, of course, is from Thomas More. It's like, it's no place. So, the warm stream of Marxism right. is concerned with with nowhere. It's concerned with that which is not yet, but could, uh, which could be called into being, as it were.
0: Yeah, in my mind, I can see uh, an implicit in that rejection of accepting the limitations of the present and grasping towards the future. Uh, I think that sort of embodies what we mean when we talk about a dialectical pessimism, right? <laughs> like the, 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 the pessimism part generally, generally turns people off because you're supposed to have hope. You're supposed to look forward to the future. But the dialectical portion of that is that there is hope for the future, but it, mu- but the present must be transcended or, uh, blasted through, uh, mm-hmm. in order to, to reach that utopian, uh, horizon. So it's like, if if we are if we allow ourselves to be constrained by the present and the, the the current situation where the we cannot think beyond whether or not the Democrats or the Republicans are in power or Labour and Tories in your instance whatever you know or uh, if we cannot if if we can't imagine our way through the uh cons- the the strictures of our current reality then. Of having a, a utopian vision doesn't matter. Like,
3: mm-hmm.
0: it, it's like I think that we are all, a, a lot of us very constrained by a lack of a utopian imagination, mm-hmm. and which, as Marxists, I think should be inherent and like part of our vision. Mm-hmm. Jason, yeah. So,
3: like at, at first, like man, at this point, we're like talking about I don't know five years ago. I was thinking of it just in terms of like. Being on the other side of a, of a left-wing sect, a Trotskyist group of, you know, of whatever, of some size relative to what, what Trotskyists considered to be, at the time, significant. <laughs> right. And so, I, I was politically trained for, like, I don't know, almost 15 years to just be optimistic all the time. About and I just, I just couldn't do it. And so, all that this was for me was just a way of, like, trying to bring up the other end just to, like – just to have a different side of myself involved in that way. I wouldn't just burn out. And then over time I've started to, I've started to uh, kind of grasp that this has always been a struggle inside of the Marxism of really since always. So like a purely cold stream and nothing but a cold stream, you either get like Bernstein or Stalin and then a purely warm right. stream or an only warm stream, you get, I don't know, anarchism. And so like, it seems to me like at our best, we have deliberately mashed the two together and, and not just like taking it as a given that they would be, but actually like it's a conscious effort on the part of revolutionaries to reassert um, and, and really it's reassert the warm stream just because it's it's the one that's the the one that can go away the most easily, and that's it's it's, a, it's critical the The merger of the cold and warm stream is like a constant project within marxism it's internal to and it's always a matter of a deliberate reinjection of the warm stream and not the cold stream because the cold stream comes easily because you know you can be a stem brain person and you could be one to the idea that socialism would be i don't know more uh, efficient it would be be a better use of resources and so like you know if we're not constantly inserting the warm stream back into it then that the we tend towards, I guess, I guess the way I would put it we, is that we would tend towards a Marxism that is dry and boring and, and it's the, it's what we get accused
0: of. Yeah. The caricature of Marxism that, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, Bloch makes this point, Bloch makes this point, which is really good. Um, and he says that the two ways of being read always go together, of course, yet they're distinct from each other. Um, and he says that, you know the, the the point of the cool stream is to kind of cool th- uh, th- this cool stream is it's cooling down. and he says without such a cooling down, Jacobinism or even totally extravagant, most abstractly utopian fanaticism would emerge. Thus, lead here is poured into the shoes of overhauling, skipping over, flying over, because experience shows that the real itself has a heavy gait and seldom consists of wings. Because really, I, I I actually kind of agree with you, Jason. But I think Bloch would make the opposite point, which is that actually the warm stream is almost intuitive to humans. This idea that, like he says, that we are from the very beginning of our existence, we are aware of a lack. We're aware of something missing. Physiologically, we're aware of this in that we're we need food, ergo we're hungry. Uh, you know, we encounter injustice, and we kind of yeah. intuitively know that it's not right. Right? We 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 identify. Uh, as block put it like we're all looking for the place at which we could be human for the first time right we recognize the the kind of fundamental inhumanity of our existence um and so we actually need the kind of economism and analytical philosophical rigor of that kind of marxism and on the other side without as he says again in on in the principle of hope without such a warming up uh uh, of the historical and especially of the current practical okay. conditional analysis the latter he's talking here about the cool stream is subject to the danger of economism and of goal forgetting opportunism mm-hmm. the latter avoids the mists of fanaticism only as it gets only insofar as it gets bogged down in the swamp of philistinism of compromise right. and finally of betrayal so right. like the st- the stakes are very high. The stakes are incredibly high and there has to be this constant uh dialectical process of holding those two yeah. things in tension because without a utopian analysis of our current situation there's literally right. no ground for kind of hoping things could change, right? Without without the idea without that kind of like burning conviction that actually the world could be different if we were to stick solely to the facts we would, we. I mean, God, you'd never get out of bed in the morning, would you? The problems just simply seem too vast, the, the mm-hmm. to 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 describe, let alone even kind of fix. But without that kind of like analytical, sort of sober-minded, yeah, um, kind of dogged commitment to evidence, to 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 philosophical rigor, you mm-hmm. end up with with you know as as you said, like anarchism, or you end up as he puts it, with like fanaticism. Rather than rather than any, I really love that image of like you need lead poured in the in the shoes of the the warm stream of Marxism to keep it on the earth, but <laughs> but at the but at the same time, like economism, uh, opportunism, like this, and ev- as he puts it, like eventual betrayal of Marxism, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the that's the cost, and yeah. I I actually agree with you. I think the record of the 20th century proves like a, the thing that Bloch wanted to do has failed. And what he wanted to do was kind of re-inject something, some blood into the socialist imagination. Yeah, um, And that project didn't work. Like the the contemporary left in lots of ways has very yeah. little to say about things like uh, religion in a, in a way that's kind of coherent. It has very little to say about culture in a way that matches even uh, the work of like Lukács um and and in the mainstream has become like especially in the UK and in the US has become kind of committed to uh electioneering right the whole point is i mean just just think of like the complete the complete uh you know DSA Harrington line of like falling mm. in behind Joe Biden and you go really is that is this is this is this what is this what a kind of like Marxist analysis of contemporary capitalism really demands? It demands that we vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> is that is that the is that the limit? Is that the horizon of possibility inside yes. which action is circumscribed? You know, and it's like uh, famously, Mark Fisher's capitalist realism has become a kind of byword for this, right? That as he puts it at the end of capitalist realism, the grey horizon, that grey curtain. That has fallen and it's not just fallen politically but it's fallen imaginatively
0: yes right
1: and and that has to be kind of resuscitated and credit credit to frederick jameson frederick jameson has spent the last kind of 40 years insisting upon the utopian potential of even the most apparently kind of degraded culture um in a way that kind of matches the ambition of someone like block who the principle of hope is like It goes from, like, medieval scholastic theology to, you know, architecture to literature. It's incredible talking about the law. It talks about music. It talks about Goethe. And I'm like... Yeah th- this is like this is a kind of this is a kind of marxism that can talk to that can that can speak to you every element of life right. and take mm-hmm. it seriously and do more than just go well that's irrationalism or it's or it's or it's it leads into fascism and it we cl- kind of close that down um so yeah that you're completely right uh, Jason i think that it, this is a constant struggle and it's a struggle which has not been really
2: kind of bothered with mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah, and I think um, so this is really uh, th- your your discussion or explication of it uh, John is super helpful for, for for my understanding of Block's text because I was the the closest I, I was sort of getting to um uh, to trying to like really grasp what he was talking about was a sense of saying that you know the cold stream is concerned with objectivity and the warm stream is concerned with subjectivity and that the two can't uh, you know uh, they must interact uh, and interchange with each other. Um, the, they need each other, um, but the, yeah, that it that makes a, a lot more sense for me the way that you've explicated it by saying that it's it's almost sort of like um, the cold stream is looking from an objective sense, looking at the uh, the facts of history and watching the development of history and saying, you know. Uh, history marches forward and and we're going in this direction and um uh you know history is is objectively determined um um and there therefore you know we can't act uh, voluntaristically or or what have you uh we have to sort of just act within the constraints of um uh you know uh the material uh reality that we I- interact with whereas the warm stream is saying yes but i suffer exploitation and oppression and i desire to no longer suffer these things i want to uh, be freed mm-hmm. uh, of these uh, these things uh, it asserts itself by by will against the you know the sort of um, objective reality. It's, uh, it's the assertion of the will against, um, the, the facts that exist saying that, that, that boils the water that says, you know, it's the heat that boils the water that, that says, I want to escape. I want to be freed. Uh, and, it, and, and that, um, the, the chilling effect of the objective analysis of our conditions or whatever, um, can have, um, needs to be heated <laughs> by mm-hmm. the passions. It needs to be driven forward. It, it's sort of like, uh, you know, Mark saying, uh, you know, the cold stream is uh, saying um, history is made by men, but not in conditions of their own choosing. And the warm stream is saying, yes, mm-hmm. but it is made by men. Uh, right. it, it must be acted upon, you know,
0: okay.
2: um, and and that it, it we must remember our, uh, what motivates us, what makes us move, what makes history happen is human beings encountering the world and caring about uh, its conditions, ab- about their own conditions.
0: I'm going to uh, abuse my uh, privileges chair real quick to interject that um, it's not just uh, anarchism that is this uh, – the one one pole of uh of the warm stream. I, I uh your your interjection just now, Kevin, made me think of Sorellianism.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's past- exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. Uh which you know we still have to do that episode on Sorel oh, yeah. one day. Jason, this is a big part of why I at
3: least me personally, why I am so opposed, and maybe even all of us are to some degree opposed to the uh the fully automated luxury communist kind of project and thesis. Because it's it's a separate question as to how practicable it actually is because it's more about like the language that it cloaks itself in like in my own mind to build a movement to overturn all that is and to grasp towards the future and to imagine a world as you're creating it seems like you would have to you have to have something in mind beyond Luxury, you have to be fighting for freedom. You know, luxury has to be a a secondary and that's like a, it's a benefit. It's like a, if, if, you know, if we get it, then that's great. But really the, the object is freedom because that's the, that's the thing that people actually fight and die for. And, uh, I've said it probably Mm -hmm. like 37 times or so, but, um, as Marx, (laughs) but I'll say it one more time as Marxists, we have to be propagandists enough to utilize what moves people most. And that is never going to be everything as it is, but slightly better. It's always going to, it's always going to ultimately come down to like, what is not and what can you imagine? Because that's what we have to fight for is what you can imagine to be. And and if it's going to be worth anything, it can't be at all like the world that we have now.
1: I mean, you make a great point, Jason, because one of the things the blog does and takes very seriously is what people dream about. And not, and he's quite critical of Freud in lots of ways. But he he says he doesn't like the the dreams of night because they tend to be looking towards the past. And he says what he's interested in are daydreams. What do you dream? What do you dream about when you're at work in a job that you hate? Right, yeah. what, what's the daydream that enters your head? Because that's about the future. That's about the world that you don't see yet, right? that's you know what are the dreams of like the ordinary working working class people what what are their daydreams you know and that's that's he's he doesn't dismiss that either and takes it like incredibly seriously and just to pick up on something that kevin was saying there's a beautiful quote actually block is a difficult writer but is often a, a genuinely really beautiful writer um to the warm stream of marxism however Belong liberating intention and materialistically humane, humanely materialistic real tendency towards whose goal all the disenchantments are undertaken. From here, the strong appeal to the debased, enslaved, abandoned, belittled human being. From here, the appeal to the proletariat as the turntable towards emancipation. The goal remains the naturalisation of man, humanization of nature, which is inherent in developing matter. This final matter or the content of the realm of freedom first approaches in the construction of communism its only space has never been ha, it has never before been present that is beyond doubt but it is also beyond doubt that this content lies within the historical process and that marxism represents its strongest consciousness its highest practical mindfulness marxism as a doctrine of warmth is thus solely related to that positive being possibility, not subject to any disenchantment which embraces the growing realization of the realizing element and which inside the sphere of the human signifies the uto- utopian in fact that freedom that homeland of identity in which neither man behaves towards the world nor the world behaves towards man as if toward a stranger like it's like really I, good, that's yeah. that's a kind of genuinely like beautiful passage i think yeah <laughs> um and shows that actually this is this is not voluntaristic i love the phrase like the proletariat is the turntable of emancipation um and if i can abuse the the privileges of being someone who has got a book coming out there is a little line from the book that i would like to oh definitely yeah Um, definitely a teaser a a teaser um so block has this kind of saying uh uh processes figare in processu, which is the process is made by those who are made by the process. There is no telos, there is no program or revolutionary committee which can enforce utopia on us. The perfect state will not make it happen, nor will the dictates of a church point us the right way. Rather, utopia is made, an open-ended and autopoetic process embodied by the laboring, struggling, dreaming working classes. Throughout so much of Bloch's work, it is the proletariat, the working class, that is the focus of utopian and revolutionary activity. Those who often have no time or have no freedom, but that which can be dreamed and fantasized about, are perhaps the most attuned to the possibilities of the present moment. The short, fleeting glimpse of what the world could be beyond labor.
0: Hey,
2: that's good writing.
0: If I wasn't up
1: stoked about it before, I I, I am now for
2: sure. But and we'll have to have you on again once. Absolutely, when you are when you are doing the uh, when you are doing your book tour. Well, yeah, I would love to talk to you about it.
1: Yeah, but but you are completely right, right? Like this idea that like you know this is the thing that Lukas really didn't like about Block is that he took religion very seriously.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and b- why? Because religion is is predicated upon an eschatology, right? It's pre- it's predicated on, upon like the the world to come and his big pr- blocks big critique of religion is that it constantly defers eschatology um you know and uh, as i put it in in that book the whole point of blocks or oh, the kind of marxist interest in religion is to uh communize the eschaton right yeah right you, you, you the the end of the world is not in the future but like the kingdom of god as 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 he puts it is at hand mm-hmm. right there's a great line by Love Peter that. Thompson who is like the great block translator. And he says like for block, the world is like almost un- like utopia is almost like unbearably close. Like there are so many moments where we kind of glimpse it just for a second. Right. You have like, I mean, uh, again, if you t- talk to my friend, uh, uh labor Kyle, like he talks about like picket lines as being like utopian places, mm-hmm. because it's the, yeah. the point at which you kind of realize that, that actually the world as it is, is actually this kind of very fragile thing, right? These things which seem immutable. There are these moments where you kind of just like, things kind of break open for a second. And you get this kind of incredible moment of of just being sort of, uh, like, shaken awake. Uh, and seeing, like, the, the, the world as it could be. If only, like, you know, through a glass darkly. If
3: that at all sounds interesting to anybody, and it should... It also makes me think that um, Lunacharsky is another person that everyone should become very familiar with because the whole God, the yes. God-building thesis and the warm stream of Marxism and, you know, this whole other side, uh, Labriola and very few other people actually, maybe DeBoer in some ways, they need to be just as much a part of the Marxism 101 as like socialism, utopian and scientific for the for the same reason because if you only have one, you just—you're not going to have the whole thing.
0: We've got an episode on uh, Lunacharsky and the God Builders coming out soon. It just needs to be edited. Uh, uh, that w- that would be our, our final episode with Mirror before he went to join his novitiate. But uh, I don't know if that's going to come out before or after this one. I'm not sure. Um, Either way, but uh, I want to hear that. Yeah, it was it was pretty great. Uh, it was uh, the uh, the crew that we'd. Got together. We we did a uh, red theology by Roland Bohr. We mm, read that yeah, and yeah. did a series of episodes on that. And it's basically the you know Marxism and religion crew, uh, our group that actually started off with reading um, the enchantments of Mammon, mm. uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with that by Eugene McCarraher. Yeah, it's but a great book. It's an excellent book.
2: Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I dropped out of it because it all got too Christian for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean uh, we're definitely a, a heavily Christian leaning podcast when you're not here, Kevin.
2: <laughs> this is what I love, this is why I'm so obsessed with William Morris is uh, EP. Thompson even describes him as a uh, a pagan communist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is like, that's my shit, man. <laughs> He's also a uh, contra block, I suppose. Um, he, uh, Morris, is not afraid to look to the past and romanticize the past. Right. In fact, that seems to be a sort of uh, a central point point of his entire project which you know this is his his political life was sorry i'm going way in the wrong direction here we're not even talking about william morris but i'm going to do, do this anyway um <laughs> uh his political life was one was one where he uh sat on the fence um sort of trying to balance and battled between the anarchists and the marxists um the anarch but he thought of himself and and acted as a, a marxist but he uh, understood the appeal of the anarchists as the voice of the uh, uh, the individual craftsman, artisan who um, uh, was resisting industrialism, resisting the proletarianization of, of his livelihood um, and looking backward and saying, no, I, I cling to the past. This thing that you're taking away from me, I desire it. Um, and and uh, Morris is the sort of, this is how you <laughs> articulate that as a Marxist, that perspective as a Marxist. And this, and this is one of the things that m- maybe to call back what we were saying at the very beginning of it, like the importance of being able to articulate, um, you know, uh, 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 every experience that is human must be articulable um, mm-hmm. uh, in our sort of system of, of analysis. And if mm-hmm. it's not, then your system of analysis is incomplete.
0: Right. Yeah. I think Walter Benjamin uh, would agree that looking back to the past as inspiration for what to build in the future is perfectly acceptable and not reactionary at all. Uh, what, he has this one quote where he says that like uh, – I'm not going to quote him. Never mind. It, I'm going to paraphrase. Where he says like it's the, the smashed dreams of our grandparents are going to be uh, more of a fodder for fighting for the future. Than any kind mm. of uh, Promethean vision.
1: Well, there's a really important there's a really important point here which I kind of integrate into you. You talked before we started recording about like the two kind of approaches to Gothic Marxism you took. Right. So I'm working on a book uh, called Capitalism: A Horror Story, which is trying to posit a third one, which is thinking about this in uto- thinking about our relationship to it to a kind of Marxist historiography in utopian terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be done through blocks, um, uh, a term that block coins in German, uh, but which gets translated into English generally as the non-synchronic. Um, and it's about the essential incompleteness of capitalist modernity. Like capitalism is this kind of universal system, but is constantly kind of seeking to re-territorialize things and to find new ways in. Um, so this uh, this kind of like notion of incompleteness means that we are sort of haunted by possibilities, right So when the past returns into the present as it does in horror, uh, as it does in the gothic, right the incompleteness of the past kind of um, kind of made known to us in the present, what that does is that inherently opens the question of the future. If the if the present is this kind of like uh, fixed thing, this secured revolution for capitalism. Then the future is just going to be a continuation, right? right this yeah. is li- what liberalism promises us. Yeah. Just it's just going to be like now forever, and maybe marginally better for the privileged few. The present is kind of is done. It's closed. But this kind of like a gothic Benjaminian uh, William Morris approach to history posits that actually the present is it's so fragile. it's so tenuous hi- in terms of its historical continuity. The past is, you know, there's the famous Faulkner line: uh, the, "The past is never dead. It's not even past." Like, mm. like try as we might, we're kind of haunted. Like, just just walk through, just walk through any city, uh, and you kind of like there was this beautiful building in Manchester that was just torn down, and you you basically seeing seeing like a hole punched into history itself, right? Like capitalism is haunted by ruins. It's haunted by the, these these things which it can never quite finally exclude and return in the shape of kind of like superstition or the monster or the ghost. And what that does is it, is it, is it does, like Benjamin talks about this idea of like the only historian with the gift of fanning anything into flame is it's the one that knows that not even the dead will be safe right from the from his opponent in his thesis on the philosophy of history and it's like mm-hmm. this kind of gothic marxism is not just about it's not just about redeeming the past as it were but it's about redeeming the future for those who never got to see it mm, right it's God, it's beautiful. it's like that's it's great. about there is this kind of kind of deep responsibility that benjamin i think feels so intensely that all of these revolutionary struggles that ended in failure all of this you know the the debris piled up at the feet of the angel of history, the um, in the storm that is called progress. All of that lands on us, and so the kind of revolutionary struggle is not just the struggle of now, but is every other struggle that has predeceased it. Um, you know this is why I mean Marx talks about this. Marx talks about this in the eighteenth Brumaire of like this is why we kind of constantly reach back to the past. And to bring out the kind of revolutionary symbols of 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 struggles that have been and gone. Um, you know, g- hauntings are about loss, right? That's what they're really about. Hauntings and hauntings are not necessarily scary, but they are deeply sad. They're deeply tragic. Mm-hmm. Like the ghost is the unquiet spirit. It's like literally the subjectification of unfinished historical struggle. Um, and you know, this is why, this is why a kind of Marxist a gothic marxism in the te- in in the in the in the scope of history and culture is so important it is in a way about communing with the dead you know the work is not finished yet uh, and if you know you bring them you collapse that distinction between that which was and that which is you w- open the possibility even implicitly of that which could be right you know right yeah that's uh that's 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 why i think there is I, you know, I always found horror movies. I've always found horror movies kind of paradoxically quite hopeful, and that's kind of the reason why. Mm-hmm. Because they're haunted by the possibility that the world can be otherwise, and it can, it could be monstrous. It can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when, when what we take to be just the way the world is is revealed to be this kind of artifice, and there is this other process that's kind of is kind of haunting the scenes in the background. So, yeah. like, the, that's the the aim of that book is to kind of point out that actually we're not just doing kind of cultural analysis. You know, we're not just doing cultural studies, but there is a kind of direct utility. And I mean, Ernst, uh, Ernst, uh, is it Traverso? Yeah, Traverso's book on uh, revolution is actually really good on this. On like actually pointing out that all of our cultural analysis is really good in the, in the context of creating this kind of dialectical image that which calls back into an incomplete past to k- kind of send us forward into a future that can fulfill it.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And this is something that I think block is immensely useful for. Chris and Jason are are currently reading the, the Traverseo book revolution right now. Uh, well, y'all are what, just like a couple chapters in, right?
0: Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're doing a, a patron reading group on it and, uh, we're about to do chapter two. So if anyone's interested in that, you know, head on over to the Patreon. Um, yeah, that derailed me. I had something to say and then <laughs> I thought about Traverso and now I can't remember what I was going to say.
2: Uh, <laughs> My bad.
0: It's okay. Uh, well, another thing that we talk about a lot is
3: how liberal the left is. And, um, that's meant to be, to say, um, a little bit less about i mean yes it is about its sensibilities but it's actually really it's like at its core it has the the assumption that things are better now than they were before and they'll be better still later and uh, they're always just going to get better but if we take control of them then they're going to get way better and uh, in response to that i guess what i would like to see is for you know all marxists all what 100 all hundred Marxists that there are um, to, re- to to really take seriously this idea that like, h- how did you put it before? The revolutionary struggle is more than just now. It's also all that came before it, but is yet unfinished that like in order to a- attain the future, we actually have to rescue the past, not by rebuilding and reasserting the past, but by uh, finding the horizons that were not ever reached the things that our forebears had imagined as the future have to be the things that we imagine as the future too we have to be animated by the same kind of rejection of this linear march of history that honestly it sucks
0: it's a terrible march we should we shouldn't have anything to do with it <laughs> yeah it reminds me of uh uh of uh the idea of the manure of history right oh yeah mm-hmm. Where like, uh, you know, we, that might be our role is just to be the manure for the, future, for the future seeds that are planted. We might not even be the seeds that are planted for the future. We might just be conditioning the soil right now. But that is implicit within that metaphor is a rejection of the linear march of progress because there is uh, the need to tend the soil, a need to plant the seeds and a need to cultivate um, as well. So, yeah, I really like that. Just redeeming the sacrifices of the past by conquering the future. Um, and yeah, I, I I really like that. That's very well put.
1: Yeah. I mean, block has this great phrase where he says that only Marxism is both um, detective and liberator. Yeah. Right. It's only that's that's the only that's the only ground at which you can do that. You can set people free, but you can give them the tools to understand why they were not free in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> You know, there's there's to be honest, I think I, I think paradoxically, uh, again, f- forgive me if I read another little quote from the book. Though, no, that's honest. perfect. Go um, for it. <laughs> Without the anchoring of the working classes, utopian struggle collapses into night, into a naive liberalism. A celebration that reduces things down to the equation of utopia equals when good things happen to me and the people that I like. Uh, Too often, this seems like the contemporary problem that philosophical and political utopianism suffers from. If, in Bloch's writing, the great worry was the paucity and malnourishment of our imagination, utopianism today suffers from both a restricted imagination as well as an absence of militant organization that could channel the imaginative dreams of the future towards concrete goals. The struggle now is not for utopia. Rather, our position is far bleaker. It is to try and make utopianism thinkable in the first place,
0: yeah, yeah, that's one of the the things that we say about this podcast is that we're uh, what we see is necessary as necessary is a salvage project for Marxism, mm-hmm. where we cobb- cobble together something from the detritus of the 20th century in order to be able to recapture a utopian vision. Because mm-hmm. as as of now, the Marxist left has a complete inability to even look toward a horizon much less beyond that horizon but yeah like we're we're definitely constrained i I don't want to talk too bad about the left and outside of the parameters which with which we're constrained so like the left sucks and it's very bad at being the left because we're so demoralized because we're so hopeless we have uh uh, an inability to to grasp towards the future. So what we do instead is we police each other's language and uh, culture consumption choices and stuff like that. And uh, uh, we've turned to that – what is it? The circular firing squad thing that people always talk about where we would much rather e- eviscerate the ideologically impure among us than we would t- than do anything else because it's easier to pile on on Twitter – because somebody listens to, uh, you know, a, a canceled band or whatever, than it is to actually do the hard work of trying to build something worth fighting for, build towards something worth fighting for.
1: And I think this is this is the value of of um, of block. And I think it's a shame the block is not more widely read because of all the resources that like that we have to hand. You know that there, there is in from the 20th century. There's probably there's very few thinkers in in kind of like european marxism certainly who have taken his kind of arguments as far as he does you know he writes uh, atheism and christianity is a fantastic book about religion mm-hmm. uh, heritage of our time on fascism the principle of hope on pretty much everything <laughs> like, but like there's there's there are, this is this is the thing about having a narrow conception of history history um this is something Block said which is like history is not an archive History is a weapon, right? It's, it's, it's this old, it's this old like boarded up room that's like full of things that you can pick up and use. And like a a lot of the time, I kind of feel like we lose sight of the immediate valence and use of this kind of theoretical or philosophical work, right? But like, I always remember something that um, uh, some of the people around Mark Fisher wrote about when Fisher died, which is like, Actually, the joy of it—the joy of reading K-Punk back in the day—was not that you suddenly had the kind of new ideas that you could play with, but that you actually realised that you were right, that you would, you know, that you're, you're not you're not crazy. It's not just in your head, and you suddenly become much less lonely. And mm-hmm. that can hap- That happens. That happens generationally that's what it means to kind of be in the struggle, but it also happens like through history, right? You have this idea that actually the world could be otherwise. And it is an immensely powerful one. And it's like in blocks work, you have this colossal treasury of information of the attempt to kind of wrestle seriously with that problem. And in a way it's kind of like you want, even in the kind of bleak conditions of now, you know, uh, this was written in the immediate rise of, and struggle with an aftermath of virulent fascism, of a kind of genocidal struggle. You know, I just think of, think of like Brecht's um, kind of like apocalyptic line of like the, you know, the fascists are planning for 30,000 years ahead. You know, they they cripple, they cripple the baby in the mother's womb. Every cell withers under their touch. And like in that moment, they were like uh, thinkers and activists and and philosophers and communists who were kind of trying to work out the facts and wrestle with the fact and take seriously the fact that the world can be remade that that even in the kind of midst of, of what must have seemed like the world ending there are, there are the kind of sparks of something brand new coming into being um, Bloch always says that Genesis comes at the end it doesn't come at the beginning um, really like it, if things if if things are ending and that I, th- I kind of feel like there is a sense in some cir- circles that that is the case at the moment, that something is ending, a certain a certain Weltanschauung, a certain worldview of uh, neoliberal capitalism under global American, like if that's ending, that's also the chance of something new coming into being. Um, so like, I, I guess that's the kind of final point really I wanted to make about this, which is like the, the value of this is not simply intellectual, right? The value of this is like, you know you you are not you're not alone if you if you look at the world and realize and think to yourself that like it doesn't have to be that way like there is you're not you know you're not someone who's just daydreaming or even if you are daydreaming there's immense value in that because it speaks to something that binds everybody this idea that like actually the world is not right but it could be like we could discover what it means to be actually human beings um which is the hopeful thought to end on yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: to counter that hopeful air uh i would just like to say that when the old world is ending and the new world is struggling to be born we are entering of course a time of monsters right
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um mm-hmm. but the the monster is uh in its latin root uh is is a warning of something but is also a sign of something um mm. That The monster exists on the edge of discourse. And what it does is it points towards the new. And there'll always be some who find the monstrous new terrifying. You know, we've seen virulent political effort to make monsters of so many groups throughout history, right? Uh, In the 70s and 80s in the UK, it was gay people. Uh, At present, in the UK, it is a virulent transphobia. Like, the monster is is a kind of emancipatory politics, right? And it's terrifying to some. But the monster is the herald of the new...